Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt your catching up. Um, uh, and uh, it is lovely, I know, for you to connect with people from different parts of the country. And um, you know, it'd be nice over morning tea to continue to do that. And and perhaps question time can also be a bit more interactive um, this morning now that you're released and liberated. Um, <laughs> Um, for much of Christian history, as many of you will know, the relationship between contemplation and action was seen as competitive and even antithetical. And the tr traditional interpretation of the biblical story of Mary and Martha is a case in point. Mary is portrayed seated at Jesus' feet, simply present and listening, while Martha bustles around in the kitchen preparing to serve a meal. And their behaviours on this occasion were interpreted as representing two distinct approaches to and forms of life, the contemplative and the active. <clears throat> In ancient and medieval times, the contemplative was honoured above the active. But since the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, the reverse has tended to be true. Contemplative and monastic lives were widely held to be useless, that is literally without use, and by implication, self-indulgent. There's a famous passage in the Scottish philosopher David Hume, who talks about the, the, the whole train of monkish virtues um, in a very di disparaging <laughs> way. And so on this account, the real work of God was not the work of prayer, the work of silence, but active, active work in the world, healing the sick transforming unjust structures and in various other ways making a difference and that is that is where we largely find ourselves today except that it's i think that this dualistic oppositional understanding of the relationship between contemplation and action no longer really rings true for us and in fact our whole retreat has been premised on the fact that there's a dynamic interplay between action and contemplation. And over these days, I hope, we've been renewing our commitment to work and care for the world, even as we explore how the practice of contemplation, of meditation, transforms the character and possibilities of our active lives. Well, yesterday I said that I thought two forms of contemplative action or engagement were particularly needful in this present time. One is discernment, and the second, which I'll focus on this morning, is what I am calling intercession. But there's an irony here. In the old dualism between contemplation and action, the major contribution contemplatives were expected to make to the life of the world was by way of their prayers of intercession. 
In other words, intercession was the main activity of contemplatives. It was what they did while everyone else got on with the rest of the work. But if we don't accept the old dualism, then do we really want to maintain a focus on the contemplative work of intercession? What I'm going to say about this is, is I feel pretty tentative. My sense of the significance of this is fairly new, and I'm just beginning to explore what I think it means. So I want to offer a few thoughts and intuitions and invite you to see whether these resonate with your experience and, and so what together we might make of this. So let me begin with what I'm calling the problem of intercession. The word intercession, like the word discernment, comes to us from the Latin. Inter means between, and sedere can mean to go, to go from, as well as to yield. So the word seed is connected here. Traditionally, intercessory prayer is prayer that goes between God and a person or situation. So just as in human relations, someone can intercede on our behalf, put a case for us, or argue, argue for a benefit or ask for a benefit. So in prayer, the thought is that we can intercede with God on behalf of the needs of the world. We can, we can ask for things. We can put our case. Well, as for many people I know, this notion of intercession or intercessory prayer has at times presented major problems for me. For a start, we don't always get what we pray for. You might have noticed that. <laughs> but if God answers some prayer and not others, where is justice? If God doesn't answer any prayer, what's the point? And if God knows everything already, why do we have to ask in the first place? <clears throat> Intercessory and petitionary prayer can seem bound up with insoluble ethical and metaphysical difficulties. And in my early adulthood, these, among other things, became so acute for me that I left the church. And for many years, I was unable to pray at all. And what I loved about meditation when I first discovered it was that it gave me a way of prayer that seemed to bypass these insoluble issues. It offered a way of being open to God, available to listen, and that was it. Meditation was a prayer blessedly free of my agenda or demands and expectations. And I'm seeing some nods and, and I imagine that this experience of the problem of intercessory prayer resonates for some of you as well. Well, years have passed and to my own surprise, 
I'm starting to sense that there may, after all, be deep connections between the prayer of meditation and of intercession. And I'm beginning to consider that, as contemplatives, we are indeed called to be go-betweens, to intercede and mediate the grace of God to a world in desperate need. So let me say a bit more about what I think this does and doesn't mean. And I, I want to share some theological touchstones which have guided my reflections on this so far. And I, again, I say I think this is a work in progress. Um, so here's, here's my touchstone one. The call to intercede does not mean that God needs to be persuaded to be nice to us. This is what I call the grace principle. God is, according to the testimony of our faith and our experience, for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Of course, there remains suffering in the world. There is profound injustice and the destructive consequences of our human alienation, which plays out in war, persecution, greed, deception and exploitation. There is illness and natural disaster. But to intercede on behalf of those suffering is not about putting in a good word for them with a God who is otherwise neglectful, indifferent or punishing. Whatever we are doing when we intercede, we are not to imagine ourselves standing heroically between the wrath or indifference of God and a suffering world. God is already and irrevocably for us, for all of us. That's the grace principle. Touchstone two. The call to intercede does not mean hurling requests or demands at God from a safe distance. Nor is it about putting in an order for our approved state of affairs, a bit like a kind of drive-through McDonald's. <laughs> and this is the incarnation principle. St Paul speaks of Jesus as the one who indeed intercedes for us. And Jesus was born as one of us and shared our common life. He intercedes, Paul says, as the one who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. So much of my experience of intercessory prayer in the life of the church has been of a shopping list of good ideas, suggestions, and semi-vain hopes about what God could or should do to make a better place and maybe just hadn't quite noticed yet. <laughs> but that isn't us going between anything. 
it's standing on the sidelines and hoping for the best. It's kind of like, off you go. <laughs> and I'd just like to point out that there's an issue over there. <laughs> and that, as I see it, contravenes the incarnation principle. So what does intercession mean? What might it mean? Touchstone three. I think it's to do with an invitation to participate in the work of grace, to join in God's ministry of reconciliation and fulfilment. It's about being with God as God intercedes, as God goes between God's self and all that alienates and pulls apart, all that promotes enmity, isolation and despair, all that leads away from life and love. This is how Christ lived and prayed. He came as God and from God to bring the world into communion with the life of God. As St Paul says, in Christ, God, God was reconciling the world to himself. And in the same way, says in 2 Corinthians, God is entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. An extraordinary and moving example of someone participating in, the, in this work of intercession can be seen in the story of Sister Helen Préjean as portrayed in the 1995 film Dead Man Walking. I don't know if you know it. The film tells the true story of Matthew Poncelet, a murderer and rapist, condemned to death in the US state of Louisiana, and of Sister Helen's accompanying him through the weeks and days leading up to his execution. On the film's account, at least, this wasn't a straightforward journey for her. She struggled with her own revulsion for this man and his crimes, and she was ostracised by some in her own community for her commitment to being in solidarity with him. And early in the film, early in Dead Man Walking, this man, Poncelet, seems incapable of facing what he's done with any lucidity. He claims he is innocent, that his partner in the crime was the, is the only culprit. He is deceitful, evasive, self-pitying, and profoundly unattractive. Sister Helen seeks to love him anyway, to see him as God sees him. And this is, isn't in a sentimental way which allows him to excuse or avoid his crime but in a way which holds open the possibility of truthfulness, repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. 
and eventually, in the light of the way she sees him, diminished, yet called into wholeness and truthfulness, he is able to let go his evasions, to be present to what he has done and become, and to seek and receive forgiveness. There's an extraordinary moment in the film where, for the first time, he calls his murdered victim by his name. For Sister Helen herself, it is a crucifying process, crossing the space between his alienation and God's love, putting herself in that space between. But this is what it means to be a go-between, an intercessor, an ambassador for Christ. And through her self-offering of her listening, her love, her solidarity, her honesty, she brings Ponsole with her into the light, into the life of God. Well, if, if this is an instance of intercession, it seems to me to have two implications. First, we become intercessors in this sense, not because we pray in a particular style, but because we are becoming like Christ, willing to give ourselves for the love of the world, our whole selves handed over in this, in this work. We are, as the word sedere suggests, yielded, seeded, given away. There's a Spanish poet called Miguel Unamuno. He has a poem where he speaks of throwing yourself like seed. Throw yourself like seed and into your own furrow, he says. And I love that image of the, of, again, it's the same image in meditation, total handing over into the mantra. It's total, totally given and no going back wholly available to the life of God being realised through us. And real intercession, I think, is possible only to the extent that we are yielded like that. Everything else is just play-acting, going through the motions. And second, on, on this understanding, intercession becomes the spirit that imbues our whole lives. It imbues all our prayer, our meditation, as much as our petition, and all our action. Everything is intercession. How? Well, we are with God, reconciled to God, as Paul says, given over into God and we are consenting that the energy of our lives be given 
so that all that is not yet reconciled to God might be brought into communion. This energy of our lives might be expressed through words and deeds which contribute healing and open space for truth and relationship, just as happened with Sister Helen. This energy might also be expressed through the focusing of our attention on the needs of the world in prayer. But this is now in a much deeper, more self-implicating way than the shopping list approach. It's the same work of intercession. It's a quality now of our being. And I think this might be what John Main meant when he insisted that there is only one prayer, and that is the prayer of Christ. We do not offer our prayers, but we learn how to participate in, how to be joined to the prayer of Christ. Or in John Main's words, when we talk about our prayer, we are really talking about our disposing ourselves for the full liberation of the life of the Spirit within us, which is the prayer of Jesus and his vital connection with the Father. And meditation forms us for intercession because it forms us to be handed over, letting go our separate self-consciousness and becoming one with the life of our Creator, Redeemer, and sanctifier. It remains the profoundest of mysteries that we're asked to participate in this way. Who can believe that God wants us, invites us, empowers us to share in this ministry? But the deeper we go in our contemplative practice, the more I think we sense this consciousness of the work of intercession and this call to participate wholeheartedly in it. As I said, these are early reflections on this theme for me. were the first people I've spoken about it with, in fact. But perhaps they resonate with your experience too. Perhaps they open up some further questions to explore. I do sense that there lies something important here for our understanding of what the vocation of contemplative communities is for our world today. So I've been suggesting over these past few days that we explore our theme, contemplation, faith, and the active life from three main angles. 
we've looked at how meditation affects our way of being and so our capacity to act with less attachment, less anxiously, less self-defendedly and self-centeredly. We've looked at how contemplation leads us to encounter God and so to the groundless ground of faith where we experience our fundamental context as gracious and hopeful despite everything that remains painful and unresolved. And we've looked at two significant features of contemplative engagement, discernment and intercession. I've suggested that these are both particular forms of action, they're things that we do, we practice, and they shape all our action and living. We act discerningly, we act intercedingly, we live in this way. It colours all our action. From the way we make decisions, to the way we respond to people, to our delight in being alive. And I said in my opening talk that coming on retreat is never simply a private matter. Each one of us is connected to and having an impact on the whole. The more faithfully we hear and respond to the call on our lives, the more faithfully and helpfully we play our part for others. We come away on retreat for others as much as for ourselves. And I said that this connection between the personal and the public, between our inner and outer lives, would be a particular focus of our time together. I hope you sense these connections even more strongly now. As we prepare ourselves to go back to the worlds in which we live, to our families, communities and workplaces, which are embedded in political and economic systems, which are embedded in the whole earth community, <clears throat> Let's pray that we may live more deeply attuned to the presence of God's spirit in all things and that we have courage to give ourselves ever more completely into God's ministry of love and reconciliation. For as we heard at the beginning in the words of Rowan Williams, to learn contemplative practice is to learn what we need so as to live truthfully and honestly and lovingly. It is a deeply revolutionary matter. <clears throat>